Welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content from across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley. And in this episode, we're chatting with Josh Horsley, founder of Praetorian Board Games, the makers of Castlescape. Castlescape is a highly strategic deck building area control board game that launched on Kickstarter this week. It's already almost at its funding goal. Josh, welcome to the binge. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Josh, it's great having you. Um, I reached out to you, gosh, it feels like a couple months ago now, Mm -hmm. at least. Uh, I saw this game on uh, one of the Facebook pages or something right away, caught my eye. I'm like, this is a game for me. I want to talk to this guy. I want to get him on the binge. I want to chat about it. So I'm glad we're able to line up an interview and uh, get you here. And quite frankly, in the week that you launched, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your background. So you're actually a software engineer uh, for an electric car company. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah, I uh, work for General Motors and I design battery electric vehicles. Um, if you've seen uh, the uh, teased Hummer, actually, I work on the, the new GMC electric Hummer for most of my job. So yeah, yeah. Software engineer, been doing that for a number of years now, been going back and forth right after high school. Actually, I started working for GM. And then I uh, went full-time at the end of college here and then worked for Honda for a couple of years. And now I'm back at General Motors. So, yeah. That is absolutely crazy. I think uh, for all the guests we've had, there's often most people are doing board games in their spare time, right? They're doing it as a hobby, as a way to kind of separate themselves and kind of escape from their day-to-day jobs. This is probably one of the most interesting I've heard of. Uh, This is crazy. So are you actually like programming like, like how the car drives or is it more along kind of how the the components are working or what do you do yeah absolutely so i uh thank you for uh calling my job interesting um (laughs) i I look at it excel spreadsheets and code all day so that's a nice refreshing take on it (laughs) um but yeah so uh what i primarily do i am unfortunately the guy that if your car gets all those lights on the dashboard that says something's wrong with your vehicle i'm the guy that tells the car to put those lights up there Uh, i do diagnostics work so it's it's really fun it's actually it's a great job and i really do enjoy it but um i am the guy who says all right this this battery isn't working properly and we need to tell the customer that they have to take it in to get repaired so necessary service can't say i i, I am the most liked guy in the industry but <laughs> so next yeah. time for all of our listeners if you're driving a gm vehicle and you see your dashboard light up all these lights it's like josh no just, just please don't send your requests right to me <laughs> They're playing their castle scape that night, just tossing the dice or playing the cards extra hard. And yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's, exactly. That's super crazy. And then, so how long have you been uh, playing board games? You've been, is this like kind of something you've been doing your whole life or? Yeah. So I started playing board games when I was about five or six years old. I played uh, a lot of Monopoly back in those days. And I also played uh, Risk. I eventually got into like Catan around the time I turned 12 or so. One of my friends was like, I got this really cool new board game, Catan. This was back in whatever it was, 07, 08, something like that. And then it kind of really just folded into uh, really finding more games, more, more fun things. And I didn't really get into the hobby until it was probably 15, 16, somewhere around there. But it just kind of uh, rolled in from there and it's been going ever since. It's been really fun. 
never ceases to amaze me the number of people that I talk to that Catan has really been, I say Catan because I'm in Canada, you know, funny oh, yeah. accent, Catan, oh, oh. Catan, tomato, tomato. <laughs> um, but the number of people that actually see that as kind of the gateway game, right? That's the one that got them into the hobby. You know, most people have played Monopoly or Risk or the classics when they're younger, but, you know, getting into the what I call the hobby, right? So the, the indie uh, side uh, of board games are really kind of exploring different mechanics and really, you know, kind of going deep down a rabbit hole for a lot of people. Katana is kind of the one that, uh, that kicked that off. So um, I would say I'm probably more recently, one of the ones that uh, Katana was a gateway game for me. I'd been playing board games my whole life and, you know, creating my own games my whole, whole life, but it wasn't me kind of coming back into the, the indie industry until I started playing Catan and uh, which I, I, I mean, it's banned from our house. We don't play Catan anymore. We've, it's been played to death. We've got all yes. the expansions and like Catan will, will rarely come out at this point, but, um, but it certainly got us there, which I really appreciate. And I think is really mm -hmm. cool. And it really opens your eyes up to different mechanics and how board games aren't just, you know, pieces going around a circle on a, on a square board, but there, there really is so many more things that you can create and adapt. And as more games are coming out, uh, you see newer games building on the generation that came just before it. And then I'm sure, you know, your game will be an inspiration for someone that's making their game and they may adapt a mechanic that you're using and reskin it and redevelop it and, you know, combine it with something else. And that that's kind of cool to kind of see this thing grow. Um, I really so, hope so. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Castlescape itself, when did you come up with this idea for Castlescape? How, how did, when did this kind of come to fruition? Yeah, so back in late 2016, my wife and I had just moved. Um, she was going to a master's program. Yeah. I was actually working remotely at the time. And in my spare time, I was just like, you know, I've always wanted to play a board game where you actually build a castle. I So a lot of the inspiration from this game, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but Age of Empires 2 was yeah. a computer game that I played a ton growing up. And my favorite strategy in that game was always to build castles and put tons of walls around them. Yeah. It was just a really fun, like turtling strategy. And so I... I took that and I really wanted to turn that into a board game. I just wanted to build long stretches of walls and kind of wall areas off. So I, I took that, I ran with it. First couple of iterations of the game weren't really any good, to be honest, but we, we quickly kind of uh, figured out that deck building was just a really natural companion to the area control aspect. And it, it really kind of just took off from there. So that was back in 2016, which uh, I believe de December of 2016. So four and a half years ago, uh, it's yeah. been a long time in coming, but you know, when you're uh, a software engineer for your full-time job, and then you've got your, your side hobby, it definitely, it definitely can take a while, especially when you try to design a, a deck builder. Uh, very hard for a first-time designer. I'll, I'll just throw it out there, but I've learned a lot and it's, it's been an awesome journey. Yeah, I mean, I think Carcassonne was why yes. I was either reading something somewhere or watching an interview you had done uh, recently. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about Carcassonne. And that, I mean, love, love, love Carcassonne. Funny thing is, I have the game still in the shrink wrap. We actually play it on the computer, right? Or we'll play Very it on nice. like the Xbox because a lot of the scoring and stuff like that is done automated for us. I absolutely love it. And that was one of the first games I thought of when I saw your game this idea of kind of building castle walls. And then when you kind of finish off the wall, then, you know, whoever has the most influence in that area, then kind of claims that castle. Was that some of the genesis for this, the kind of building it in as you kind of combine the deck builder with the, with the area controller? A absolutely. So basically this game, I really wanted to create the game. So the, the inspiration was the castle walls, obviously, yeah. but what I really wanted to create was a game about building a castle that was similar to dominion. 
Um, yeah. Except in Dominion, you frequently buy, have to buy these cards for points that just go into your deck. They're, they're dead cards. Whenever you draw them, it just it stinks to draw them. I was like, you know what? I want to actually be building something with those cards. And then I took Carcassonne and it's kind of roads and, and placing meeples on city tiles yeah. and trying to finish off cities yourself. I kind of took that idea and I ran with that to really fold the two games together. So Dominion and Carcassonne. And I also took some, uh, some small inspiration from Clank as well. Mm. So during the, the game of Castlescape, you're, you're building this castle area, but you also have the opportunity to do things that are, uh, let's say a little shady, uh, like not, not, not very ethical. Um, and so you can get these negative stats called infamy and corruption. Yeah. And so periodically over the course of the game, the King comes to take inspections of his castle and he will, based on how much infamy and corruption you have, you'll, you'll lose influence that you've garnered on the game board. So I, I really tried to take Carcassonne, but it's put your meeples on, pull them off kind of thing as you're walling off area. And it turned into this really just strategic kind of head to head, but uh, indirect conflict sort of thing. But I really wanted to give players the opportunity to interact heavily on a central game board in a deck builder. Something I've said in a few other interviews, uh, maybe the one you referenced as well, is that I don't have many deck builders, at least in my collection or that I've played, that are not a solitaire style experience where mm. I'm playing my game, you're playing your game. They might interact a little bit, but we, for the most part, it's just, oh, you took that action first, or maybe you added a negative card to my deck, whatever the case may be. In this case, I really wanted the focus to be on the game board, building the castle walls, me going head to head with you and trying to outsmart you and just be clever, outmaneuver you, that sort of thing, and give players the satisfaction of being able to do that with their opponents rather than just I built my deck the best and my, my, my deck is just the best at the end of the game. Yeah. When did you have your first uh, prototype, working prototype, where you've got the, and I mean, did it involve Lego pieces, like two by two Lego pieces for your castle wall? Like, when did you, when did that happen? How, how far back was the actual first? Good one? question. So I started designing this game in December, 2016. Mm -hmm. And in December of 2016, I had my very first prototype, which is nothing like the game it is now. It looked a lot like uh, Candyland, I'll say. <laughs> but uh, basically, uh, I, I have always been kind of a, I have an idea. I'm just going to run for it. I start drawing on cards. Like just everything is by hand. Then I usually go to PowerPoint. Once I've kind of got a good idea of how I want things to work out the actual game itself. I used little uh, wooden cubes actually to start just mm. to represent a wall. Yeah. What I've learned through my years of designing is you don't have to have the final product or anything even remotely close to the final product. When you're prototyping, no. what you really want to do is you just want to get your ideas on paper, figure out if they work. And if they do work, great, run with that. Then you can start to refine. But what I've seen a lot of designers do through the years is they just really try to have a perfect product the first go around and they waste yeah. a ton of time doing it. And, and, and at the end of the day, you lose a lot of your time and sometimes even a lot of your just like emotional investment. You were so emotionally invested in that first prototype that you don't have the... I guess the uh, desire to keep going after you've done that a few times. So start yeah. easy, start small. Uh, yeah. Little wooden cubes. And then eventually I got a little more clever and 3d modeled my own piece and uh, 
I have a 3D printer, so I, I make a lot of my own pieces and a lot of my games that I'm designing are pretty tactile. So I try to incorporate the 3D printing into it as much as I, I can. But What came first, the 3D printer or the game? Did you get ooh, the 3D printer uh, as a result of uh, getting into prototyping? Or? I, I got the 3D printer as a Christmas present from my, <laughs> my wife and both families in uh, 2018, I believe. Nice. Either 2017 or 2018. Yeah. And from there, I just went crazy. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's great advice you give, I think, on the um, prototyping. And I often tell people this, that you can make a prototype with paper, scissors, you know, stuff from your local dollar store, right? You don't have to go crazy. You would be surprised at uh, what you can actually get from your local dollar store, right? So if you need to have like gems, I mean, you can find stuff at your local dollar store, like for cents, right? To if you want to have like gems in your game, you're looking for cubes and things like this. What I, what I try to lean towards though is, is make it as much of a tactile experience as you can, right? So the graphics don't have to be finalized. You can use clip art or whatever you can find online, like literally just copy and paste stuff off the internet. It's just a prototype anyways that you're using for play testing. Yep. But the more you can have things that are actually tactile, right? So if you're going to cut out little cards, if you can get uh, sleeves, right? So like I know Sleeve Kings, for instance, they do every size of sleeve you can think of. If you can get sleeves and sleeve those uh, the, those cards that you print off, the tactile feel them is going to be much better as you're playing. It's going to feel more mm -hmm. like a real game, right? Cubes, like you're saying. So instead of doing like little cutouts of paper to say this is your castle wall, having a physical cube, you could even use a penny, whatever, but something sure. tactile you can put there to kind of build that I think helps people in their mind visualize it. Mm -hmm. Not everybody's good at visualizing what something will be. Mm -hmm. Often people can only see what is in front of them. And, uh, you know, I know as a, as a, as a designer, and I know a lot of designers out there, that's some of the frustrations they have, right? When they're trying to explain something to someone to get them to play test it, and the person can't get past what they're looking at. They can't, they, they can't see past that and see what it's going to be. So the more you can help along with that, I think, uh, I think the better for sure. With those, I, with those I, I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the game. Uh, for the people that are watching, I'm going to uh, share my screen so they can, uh, they can see the Kickstarter page. Uh, just right off the top, uh, congratulations on where you're at. So this is what day three now of your campaign, I believe, right? Yeah, we we crossed over into day three six seven hours ago. Yep. Okay. So uh, for my last count, you were just over twenty. I'm gonna put this in Canadian dollars because it always sounds bigger. No problem. Over twenty thousand dollars funded on a twenty four thousand dollar target. Still twenty one days to go. Uh, it's just math at this point. Uh, the math is actually pretty consistent in uh, Kickstarter. And usually your last two days is going to be at least 50% of what your first two days were. So mm -hmm. based on straight math, it's not a question whether this is going to fund. It is going to fund. I mean, that, there's no doubt about that. It's just how, how far beyond your target you're going to go. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm excited because I've already backed this game. I backed this game on day one. Anytime I can see, uh, you know, play with Lego or castle pieces, I'm in, right? So I, I was in right out of the gate. Um, and well, thank you. It, uh, no worries. But, and it makes, it, I got excited though, when I saw like how far along you are, cause I know I'm going to get this game, which was, uh, which is pretty exciting. So can you walk us through kind of how you play this game? So as I scroll past, we've got kind of the opening screen on the Kickstarter page is there's, you know, the board, which is uh, like a grid, right. Um, mm -hmm. to, uh, to, to build your castles on. Yep. You've got cards off the side, player boards and so forth. Just kind of walk us through kind of the, how this yeah. game kind of comes together. Yeah. So uh, what you'll see on the, the Kickstarter page there, and I'd also just love to preface and say, we had a very talented videographer put together our little two minute intro video. If yeah. you want to see basically how the game works, 
in two minutes or less, watch that video. He did a stellar job and I, I could not be happier with it. Um, but as far as the campaign itself, the basics of the game are actually pretty simple. The, the board that you see in front of you starts with a single wall on it and it's the construction site for the King's castle. He wants you to build a magnificent castle that'll span the ages. And along the way, you'll, you'll earn renown for doing so, but only one guild can reap the rewards. So the player with the highest renown at the end of the game is going to be victorious. So basically, you are going to be placing little wall cubes pulled from the quarry. That's one of those sideboards. And those wall cubes are going to go onto the game board, and they're going to wall off those areas. Each player also has a bunch of little wooden cubes that represents your guild's recruits. You're going to take those recruits, you're going to place them on the game board. Those represent your guild's influence being exerted on the different areas of the game board as it's being built. So it's not necessarily who builds the castle, it's who gets to claim credit for building the castle mm. that the king is ultimately going to reward. So based on where you put your recruits, it can very easily influence who's actually going to win the game. But if you're the one who's building the walls, you get to determine where the, the actual baileys are built. So you can kind of maneuver around your opponent's recruits. So you, you've got this kind of dueling dueling fates thing here where you've got walls and recruits you also have the traditional gold mechanic in a lot of deck builders where you buy cards you add them to your, to your deck and they do a variety of things so the basic three mechanics in this game are basic three resources are walls recruits and gold and uh the one of the primary strategies is to get your recruits on top of the castle walls so whenever you're placing recruits on the game board they they must be placed on the ground and basically they're okay. building the castle. Yeah. And so you, whenever you place a wall piece on the spot where they exist already, they get put up on top of the castle wall. Any guild recruit who's on the ground is only worth one influence. Any recruit that's on a wall is two influence. So you're really incentivized to get your recruits on top of the walls and kind of wall off around your opponents so that theirs don't end up on top of the walls. It's it's uh, a lot of my players kind of, or play testers have said it's very chess-like, go-like, very strategic sort mm. of feel, but there's a little bit of randomness introduced based on the cards you draw and how they allow you to place your recruits, place your walls and buy cards from the deck. So, and I imagine when you're placing your your recruits, you're either placing uh, a recruit or you're placing a castle wall, or can you do both on the same turn? You can do both on the same turn. So okay. you're you're going to play all your cards in your hand, and there's an order. You must place all of your walls first, mm. so that you kind of, if you've already got recruits on the board, you can yeah. build in the direction that those recruits are, or you can try and be clever and and maneuver around your opponents. Then you replace your recruits. So you're kind of planning for future turns. I yeah. think I'm going to build in this direction next turn. Now the, the board state is going to be completely different by the time it gets to your next, per, your next turn because your opponents have a chance to react. But yeah. you think you're going to go in this direction. And so it becomes a game of like, you do this. Okay, I, I've got a good reaction for that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to move your recruits or I'm going to move my recruits. We're going to play kind of cat and mouse around this board and, and ultimately see who comes out victorious in the end. So given that you're placing your, your castle pieces are always placed after you place your recruits. Sorry, your mm -hmm. castles first, then your recruits, right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. So then in that case, you're signaling where you're going to be placing next round, right? So the guy mm -hmm. goes after you and says, okay, you just place the recruit there. Obviously he's going to build a castle wall there. Mm -hmm. So I imagine there's kind of false signaling you would do in this game as well, where you might 
place of recruit to kind of say, I'm going to go that way when really you're going to go that way. Is that there definitely can be, it really depends yeah. on how much of a mind game you and your, your local <laughs> friend group want to play with each other. It's all mind yeah. games, man. It's all mind games. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but what some of the really fun things are, so you, how the score of the game works is the bigger, the Bailey is, that's the term for an enclosure of a castle. Yep. So the, the points that you earn for the game are based on how large the Bailey's are for every square you enclose inside of your walls, you completely enclose, it's worth a point. So the bigger that Bailey is, the more points it's worth, but it also gives all your opponents chances to steal little pieces of it or throw their own recruits in there and try and wall off parts of it or kind of chunk it up. And so a lot of players are like, wow, I'm going to score so many points for this. And then on their opponent's next turn, they're like, eh, you didn't see this. I've got one recruit in there and I'm just going to wall off these six little squares and your Bailey's now worth a third of what it was before. And I got those six points. Ha. <laughs> so it's, it's just a, it's a fun game where people are constantly trying to outthink each other. It sounds like a blast. Now there is how many hundreds of cards was there? Like, did I read that right? Like you're in the uh, hundreds 169 cards. cards currently. Yeah. And how many unique pieces of artwork? I think we're at something like 78 pieces of artwork on the cards themselves, plus wow. everything else that went into making the game. So this is quite the investment up front, I would say, I guess. Eh? Is that is that fair to say you've invested that, quite a bit just getting to this point? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Uh, so, and that's part of the reason for uh, a $24,000 Canadian uh, goal, yeah. because that just represents a significant amount of yeah investment. What I plan on doing with the, the funds and the proceeds from this Kickstarter is we've got uh, about a third of the art for our cards. All the other art for the game is pretty much finished at this point. Okay. And we've got just like a placeholder coming soon image on the rest of the cards. And we've worked with our artist and designer and we plan on taking approximately three to three and a half months post campaign to finalize the art for just the cards themselves. And then we can go to the manufacturer. We've already got tons of quotes. We've got tons like the, the mold for the, the little castle wall pieces and everything all worked out. So we should be able to just take the art, put it on the cards, send it to the manufacturer and uh, hopefully get it into players' hands relatively quickly. Is there a potential for uh, another stretch goal or even pledge level to be added where someone can get their image on a card or so i very much considered that uh yeah. yes so what i tried to do since this was my first campaign i didn't want a logistical nightmare i very much considered adding pledge goals like that mm -hmm. i didn't want to bog down the campaign in them though it could have just made it more exciting you never know so what i might end up doing is i might uh talk and send out an update or something seeing if anyone's interested in that sort of of pledge goal but that's that's a good recommendation people love being uh, memorialized in uh, in games i tell you <laughs> so talk a little bit about this campaign going into it so what's some of the marketing that you you did to kind of build the word on this yeah. So I have, to be honest with you, I started with, with this game four and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. I started following Facebook groups about three and a half years ago. Yeah. And I am one of those people that has pretty thick skin. I can have people tell me something I'm working on is garbage and I, I'm okay with that because I know that I, I can work through it and make it better because of their feedback. So I started posting about this way long ago. And like I said, it was kind of candy landish landish. Yeah. Uh, my first board was honestly just red and yellow and green and blue squares, I believe. And it was horrible looking horrible. I believe my first post I got, 
I don't know, 200 people telling me, oh my gosh, you need to change this so much. And it's like, okay, I got it after the first 10 people, but you know, <laughs> um, but what that allowed me to do is taking feedback like that and, and rolling it into the next thing. All right, here's my next rendition. I tried to make it better. What do you think? Okay, I changed this. I made it better. What do you think? Over time, that has really snowballed into now whenever I post in some of those, those Facebook groups, I get 50 to 200 people that will like or comment on my posts and they're like, uh, oh my gosh, this looks amazing or you really should look at changing this. And not only has that generated kind of a culture of people that really want my game because they've had kind of say in it all along the way and I've been incorporating all their feedback, but what it's really allowed me to do is also make their stuff part of the game itself. Uh, and, and it's like people see, hey, I, I told him to do this part of the game. I think one of your, your recent uh, guests on the show was JT Smith. Mm -hmm. He yeah. actually, uh, just a little shout out, he said a few things on a couple of my posts way back about how beautiful the, the box art was. And I, I took some of his recommendations and kind of tried to incorporate them into the thing. And it, I personally love how the box art has turned out. So it's great. Yeah. And, and he, uh, he said something really kind to me the other day. He's like, Josh, I've, I haven't backed a Kickstarter in years, but I am so excited to back yours because I, I love the game you've made. Oh, yeah. And so it, it was like a huge endorsement that I was so excited to get just because it's really awesome to see people who have been following for years. And yeah. it's like, I love this game you've made. And the culture you've built around it is so cool. So I'm just really encouraged by all the people that have kind of said that. And that was a lot of the people that were my, my day one backers were just those people that have constantly been liking and commenting and talking through this whole thing with me. So you've built out this community on Facebook, uh, mm -hmm. which I would call almost like grassroots, right? You are literally mm -hmm. just posting over the past three years and so forth and engaging with people, which I encourage most people to do. Uh, now I think I've seen, uh, ad, was there, ad, I think there was ads going into this. There, there well, were right? ads. Yes. I also did you do your own Facebook. or did you hire a marketing company or I hired, uh, Andrew Lowen and Sean Bradford from next level web to, level. to do okay. some ads and through the process, they were actually really helpful. And, yeah. um, at this point, I believe, uh, we're, we're about done here, but I'm, I'm able to kind of look at the work that they did. They handed everything back off to me and I'm now able to kind of manipulate those myself and, and manage them. So uh, it, it was a great relationship. And so we did, we did a fair amount of ads kind of leading up to the Kickstarter, uh, and then a few ads during the first couple of days here. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we, we might start doing them again after we fund, but, uh, generally until you funded the ads are not as effective. So yeah. that's just kind of where we're at at this point, trying to get the grassroots over that last 20% or so to fund the game. And then we'll probably turn the ads back on. And, uh, now, I noticed you talk about you're going to, you know, collect your shipping, uh, you know, mm -hmm. in the pledge, who are you using as a pledge manager? Who's, who's your pledge? So, manager? yeah. So right now I am planning on using Backerkit for the pledge okay. manager. Yep. Very good. I have also considered GameFound. Uh, there's a few differences between the two yeah. and without going into it too much, uh, Backerkit has a little more support for the, the game. So if you're doing a yeah. really small game and you, you don't mind handling like customer complaints yourself, GameFound can be great. Um, but Backerkit has like a small level of just support that people yeah. can all, all go to and, and get help with certain things. And they help you manage your, your shipping questions and people who need to change their shipping addresses. And it, it just is a, you pay for it, but it, it makes the experience better on the, the creator, uh, who's sure. trying to take some headache off. 
And then I noticed that you are collecting the VAT during your, uh, during your yes. pledge manager. So this is something that a lot of uh, publishers are going through right now where you've had these changes in the European Union and uh, the UK. We've talked ad nauseum about this on the, on the podcast, but a lot of people are kind of caught in between, right? They were running their campaigns kind of around now and, you know, as the legislation is changing. So um, I'm starting to see more publishers do this. And uh, you're another case of this is saying, you know what? Too risky. We're gonna we're gonna collect the uh, the VAT in Europe for specifically for the European backers uh, in the pledge management software. That way, the people in the U.S. are not uh, having to prepay for VAT that you know is being collected for other yep. parts of the world and so forth. Um, was that a conscious decision you made going in? Or is this something you've been planning for a while, or or what led you to that? I I spent several weeks very heavily contemplating how I wanted to handle this. Yeah, because it is there is a lot of pressure from just customers who want to buy board games. They, no one likes to be uh, tacked on a big shipping uh, kind of thing at the end. Like everyone wants, just wants to pay for the board game and then get their board game and be done with it. And I, I personally would love that as well. But right now, just with the state of the world, with changing Brexit EU laws for VAT yeah. taxes and everything, I made the conscious decision that yes, this, this might potentially hurt sales on the Kickstarter, but I also want to be able to produce future games and I don't want to make a mistake now that, and say, I'm going to charge everyone in the EU $15. I'll absorb all the VAT costs and, and we'll just, we'll make the game that could potentially prevent me from making games in the future. And yeah. I really, I have a lot of exciting kind of expansion ideas for this game. And I really want to be able to make those down the road. So I'm trying to take the safest route um, that still allows me to deliver the game to everyone without too much headache um, along the way kind of thing. So on that note, um, so the next steps for you then is uh, to do 2.0 of, of this game or do expansion of this game, or do you have another game coming first and coming back to this one? Or what are kind of the plans in the next uh, yeah. six months to a year? Yeah, so that's that's a great question. Uh, ideally, my, my hope here is that we can get this game into backers' hands by June of 2022, so about a year from now. Yeah. And I would love to, around the same time, launch a follow-up campaign potentially a reprint of the the first edition here maybe a second edition something like that if there's enough uh kind of people that want it and i also want to offer an expansion pack with it so or potentially two i have quite a few ideas that are in development and um as you might imagine when you're building a castle there's a lot of things that go into a castle there's towers there's there's castle gates there's um walls, banners, flags, you can sure. have soldiers, all of those things. So I have a lot of those ideas in the works right now. And I really want to launch a campaign in about a year for Castlescape. I have one or two other games that are uh, pretty far along and we'll see kind of where those land. But um, I'm anticipating that my next game will be an expansion and follow up for Castlescape itself. That's awesome. Josh, uh, all the, I just wish you the, the, the all the best of success on this uh, campaign. I can't wait to get the game myself. Uh, I'm, I'm just, I love building stuff. I love castles. I love Lego. I love all this kind of stuff. So this has hit the sweet spot for, I think, a lot of uh, people like myself that kind of geek out over this. Um, but what's got me even more excited is that you've already mapped out the next year, two, three years, and uh, there's a lot more coming from uh, Praetorian uh, board games. So Wish you all the best of luck for that. And I want to thank you again for coming on this podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad you're excited. I'm extremely excited and I hope other people will be as well. So thank you so much. And it's been a pleasure to talk to you.
Take care. Cheers. Cheers. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply join the Facebook group Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time. We'll be right back.